Well, the world has been acquainted lately with a series of circumstances that were thought to be well under human control, often harnessing powerful nuclear forces for the good of civilization, yet only to spiral out of control. We watched Japan's elite engineers endeavor to contain a number of nuclear power plants, which a number of fuel rods were damaged by the earthquake and the subsequent tsunami. 140,000 people were immediately ordered to remain indoors for fear of radiation contamination. Workers, citizens, the food supply, soil, air, water were all in danger of radiation contamination. In the U.S., engineers have been using hydraulic fracturing to free natural gas from shale formation. The fracking uses chemical fluids to create huge fractures underground, and fears persist that cracking rock that deep may lead to earthquakes. Studies are being done to see if fracking may have led to the recent earthquakes in Arkansas and Ohio. Surprises, but how they're going to track that down, I don't know. I was reading, I think it was yesterday, uh, new technology is planning to be done in Oregon uh, using a dormant volcano, pouring millions of gallons of water into these wells have been created in there to employ geothermal steam or to create energy. (laughs) Of course, we never know what we're doing. We have these high, powerful technology using powerful forces in the world around us and I think we have it contained and sometimes they backfire on us. Maybe these are illustrations for us of catastrophic circumstances, in this case that affect many, many lives, but you and I are acquainted and maybe can personally sympathize on one level or another with the the feeling of loss of control. At one moment we feel we've got the trial or particular suffering that is raising its ugly head and we've kind of got it barred back in the closet and we turn around to realize it's exploded in a grave trial and some personal suffering. James, in this book, writes about faith, saving faith. What, what does faith look like? What, what is saving faith? What is his character? In James 2, he underlines Abraham, who believed God and it was credited for righteousness. And so he talks about a justifying faith, a, a faith that rests in the righteousness of God as opposed to a demonic, a a dead faith that may believe intellectually about God, that God is one, and yet there is no fruit. He offers the example of Abraham in Genesis 22 when God asked him to offer his son Isaac on the altar, which vindicated his faith. It demonstrated he had saving faith. That is, God had promised, wrapped up the whole promise of salvation in Isaac through whom Christ would come. And here he was sacrificing the very object of promise of salvation, which demonstrated he was looking to God as the promise of salvation. Well, that's really the core of James, but faith is not seen in a vacuum. Faith is seen in the context of trials and sufferings. And so from chapters 1 through 5, we see trials and sufferings. Chapter 1 begins with trials, and chapter 5 ends with trials. In fact, calling believers in their suffering to look to Job who in the midst of his suffering clung to the sovereignty of God's purpose in the trial. And also of Elijah, who depended upon the Lord in prayer in the midst of suffering. They're commended to us. And so suffering provides the bookends for James. Faith is not going to be seen in a vacuum. It's seen underneath the the oppression and difficulties of trials and suffering. Now, there are multifaceted sufferings given for us in James. There's the suffering related to temptation, 
to the affliction of the homeless, to the suffering of the poor, to divisions of partiality, to the oppression of rich who have the monetary funds to take the poor to court and sue them. Sometimes it happens in the church, according to James 5. There is the suffering from the tongue, speaking against a brother or sister, with jealousy and selfish ambition. James includes quarrels, fighting, and murder into this context. Sometimes we're the recipient of that. The true nature of saving faith is not seen in a vacuum. It is seen through the lens of suffering, through trial. It is in the fires of trial and suffering that the true character of saving faith comes to light. Like a precious stone to fire, faith is refined and realized in trial. It is that topic of faith in trial that we turn. And we'll be looking at five divine provisions for trial and suffering. Indeed, while we, we can't contain all the trials that come our way, maybe we have some level of sophistication, technology, wherewithal, health, to be able to put some of those to rest, yet they become uncontainable at times. Can't suppress them. But we can be sure that God is sovereign. James 4.15 reminds us, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. That he has a purpose. He's employing each trial for the good of believers. And so we'll need these provisions to be able to interpret the trials rightly, to respond to them rightly, and as he commends to us in verse 2, to count it all joy that we may grow in maturity. Now, I've given five divine provisions, and I believe the text actually marks those out for us. If you would, I'd like to identify those really quickly. You see each provision underlined, emboldened, accented with the present command, the present imperative, and we see the word let. So look with me, beginning at verse 4, you see this, and let steadfastness, that's a present imperative, it's a command. There is the first provision. We'll call that persevering faith. It's a faith that perseveres. We see in verse 6, let him ask in faith. That's again related to wisdom in verse 5, let him ask God. He's asking for wisdom and faith, and so that will be our second provision, our second imperative and command, asking for wisdom. Then we see in verse 9, again, let the lowly brother boast. Let him boast. That's our third provision. We'll need these to endure trial and to interpret them rightly. Verse 13, we find our fourth, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, verse 13 carries us all the way through verse 18, because in 19 we see the fifth, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, and he begins to dialogue on the word of God, the the law of liberty, which we'll argue is the gospel. What that tells us is that verses 13 through 18 are a unit, a unit, and we'll explore that. Because we often want to divorce the goodness of God from the diagnosis of lust and temptation, sin and death. And so we'll look at verse 13, at the goodness of God's gifts. And then finally, verse 19, his word, his word. And we'll commend those again if if you didn't catch them. Let's begin with prayer. We want to ask God for wisdom as we consult his word. James calls us to ask for it. We need it. Lord, we admit to you our need for dependence, our need for wisdom. We are proclaiming to you our insufficiency, our frailty, our futility, that we lack. We are people who lack. We are finite creatures. We are created to be dependent upon you. 
And yet we have a spiritual problem residing within our hearts and that we declare our sufficiency in self. We don't declare that we lack. We're constantly looking for ways to fulfill our need outside of you. And so we ask for your wisdom. We ask for gospel wisdom, the wisdom of Jesus Christ, to show us that we lack and Christ alone is sufficient. So we commend our hearts to you to even understand trials and faith in the light of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. A little bit about the author and the background I think would do us well before looking at the first provision. We we would argue that James here, being a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a significant player, a significant leader that was very well known. We would then contend that this would probably be James, the brother of Jesus, the brother of Jude. Jude in Jude 1.1 mentions that he's the brother of James. This is one who's well known. He says, I'm the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would argue it's probably not James, the son of Zebedee. He was killed by Herod Agrippa very early on in the stages of the church in Acts 12.2. James was among the brothers of Jesus, mentioned in Matthew 13. In Acts, the brothers of Jesus were among the disciples gathered at Pentecost. Peter, when he was released from prison, asked that a report would be given to James. He seems to have been among the chief of the elders in Acts 15. He's concerned for the Gentiles and he initiates a letter to encourage the Gentiles. He sides with Paul against the Judaistic teaching, false self-works teaching that was going on in the Jerusalem church, and he contended with that in Acts 21. We'd argue that this is the Lord's brother. I can't imagine what he would have seen in his life from denial of Christ to conversion and salvation, and then being there at the early stages of the church amidst the sufferings of the cross all the way to the sufferings of the early church. And so that's where we greet the word a dispersion, to be scattered. It, it involves persecution. This scattering, we, we could trace it back to a dispersion that happened during the days of Babylon when Babylon deported uh, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And so it began there where the Jews were scattered throughout the world. The Greeks also laid their hand in persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes and then the Romans as well. So to be dispersed was through the hand of suffering, persecution, oppression. More than likely, many of these people, Jews, had come back at Pentecost to celebrate in Jerusalem and had heard the gospel through Peter in Acts chapter 2. Many were probably saved and went out to plant churches or impact the world at large, taking the gospel with them. We know in Acts that 3,000 Jews believed and were added to the church. And so we have that impact. We've got those who came to celebrate the feast, saved, they scattered. The church is built, 3,000 of them. The Lord raises up suffering through Saul at the time to become Paul, and then through uh, Nero, who raised up suffering in the uh, middle 40s. And the people were scattered under persecution. Their blood was spilt. Well, the effect of that, obviously, was the advancement of the gospel and the encouragement of the churches as the church spread abroad to minister to the churches that had been planted abroad. That's the context. Suffering. Can't escape it. Can't escape it in the context. You can't escape it in the passage. So what are the provisions? Well, the first provision is this, persevering faith. You will need persevering faith. You'll need saving faith. 
We find that in James 2, 23, as he underlines Abraham, who believed God and was credited for righteousness. It's a faith that moves outside of self to rest completely upon the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's a saving faith. And that faith that's anchored in Christ is a persevering faith. It's a steadfast faith that remains under. Let's examine a little bit of the context of this persevering faith. We'll explore it in these uh, three verses. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let, there's our command, steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now often we, we, we love to throw around this verse, count it all joy, just be happy. You know, it's the mentality of someone throwing up in the john and you say, well, be happy, you've got more room to eat food. It makes no sense. It's just the command, do it idea of pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. But there's more to it than that, as we'll see. Why is there joy in this persevering faith? Maybe we'd ask the question, how does faith persevere? Well, let's explore that a little bit through this text. There's a, a, a relationship between faith and trials. We could say that this persevering faith possesses trials. Notice here with me in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith... And just stop there for a moment. In Greek, it's a genitival relationship. For those of you taking a Greek class, it's a little promotion there. But there's a relationship, a possessive relationship. It's test fit for your faith. It's the tests that belong to faith. In other words, these tests and trials, the world knows nothing about. We're not just talking about stumbling blocks that disrupt our expectations in life. They are trials fit for saving faith. They belong to saving faith. How so? Because they're controlled by God. The word test is a pretty neutral word. Test, trial. When it's in the context of someone like Satan, who is finite, it's translated to tempt. A finite being, in order to be in control, would have to seduce to manipulate. So we see the idea of temptation used. But in the hands of God, this word is used of testing or trial. It's used of one who is sovereign in control, who is infinite, who has a purpose. He doesn't need to seduce. He's not dependent upon us. So these trials, the reason the text translates it so, is because they are indeed controlled by God. They're not seducements. They're not allurements, as Satan would use them. They belong to believers they belong to you. These trials are fit for your faith. They belong to you. I think of Philippians 1.29 where Paul says it's not only been gifted to believe, but also to suffer for his name's sake. Trials are yours. They're a gift. Well, how can this be? Because trials refine and test the believer's dependence, reliance, trust upon God's goodness and the provision of Jesus Christ. And so it's met for saving faith. It shows us where our reliance is. When everything begins to fall apart is our trust in the truths of the gospel and the truth of God's sovereignty. It tests our hearts. They're met for saving faith. Demonic faith can't respond to this. James 2.19 says, The demons believe that God is one and they shudder. There's a dead faith. That dead faith can't respond. They don't believe in the sovereignty of God. They don't believe in the gospel. It's all about self. And when the world gets disrupted, self falls apart. 
Faith in faith crumbles. So these trials act as aerators, if you will, that pierce the soil of faith to allow greater dependence upon God. Genuine faith, this persevering faith, possesses trials. But it also employs spiritual knowledge in the trial. Look at verse 3. It employs spiritual knowledge in the trial. For you know that the testing, which belongs to your faith, produces steadfastness. There's a couple characteristics we can draw from this knowledge, this spiritual knowledge that faith employs. One is an intellectual knowledge. And second, there's an experiential knowledge. There's application. There's both intellect and application. The two go together. We see the intellectual in verse 2. Count it, consider, make a mental calculation. It is a, a, a certain way of thinking, a biblical thinking that is commended. Faith receives the spiritual data called it all. Receives the spiritual data called it all. It adds spiritual knowledge and receives a sum total joy in God's sovereign purpose. It's a calculator. Everything, every circumstance. And what do I know about this circumstance? Plus the knowledge of this trial in God's hand. Hmm. I can rest in his sovereignty. That's joy. It's the attitude of resting in God's sovereignty, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and endurance. Our problem is that we don't quite understand the value exchange, the currency exchange. You know, you exchange currency. You understand a little bit of the value to make sure you're getting the right value for that currency exchange. I remember when my children were, love, were young, they loved to <coughs> exchange pennies for some object of greater value. I remember one of my children having something to do with 20 pennies as a pile of pennies, and I offered to give a, a silver dollar or a dollar. And the child responding, no, I've got more pennies here. Wait a minute. <laughs> now, you don't understand the value of the silver dollar versus 20 pennies. It doesn't match up. Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, 16-17, where he says, We don't lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. There is no comparison, but we look at the light pennies that come through, the afflictions, and we have no value with which to rate the the momentary light afflictions against the eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison that is eternal. And so he says, count. There's a calculation that needs to happen. A heavenly exchange in light of your earthly currency. But another characteristic of this knowledge is it is experiential. We see this in verse 3, the word knowing, gnosko. It's a present participle, knowing. It, it has the idea of the character of knowing. It's a very intimate knowledge. It's acquainted. It's experiential. It's not just intellectual. There is application involved. And we understand this kind of knowledge. If you sit down with your child and try to explain a mathematical principle, what often you're going to have to do is give a story problem in order to connect the dots. Because it's one thing to know about it, but we really don't connect it until we see it and the dots connected in the, the story problem. And when it's solved... The same goes their spiritual lives. We can know a lot about the trial, a lot about the glory of God, a lot about the gospel. 
But until we're thrown in the midst of it and called to seek his wisdom and to apply what we know about the sovereignty of God and what we know about the gospel in light of that suffering, we really don't understand it. And so he moves on to describe this persevering faith that possesses trials, that uses spiritual knowledge, produces steadfastness. Verse 3 produces steadfastness. The word produce just means to down work. It can be translated down work. It's to work it down into your life so that you remain under. You could translate steadfast to endured, remain under a heavy, strenuous burden of suffering and hardship. But what does that burden look like, we ask, that I need to remain under, that tests my faith? Well, the word meet uh, can be translated to encounter. We get the word perimeter from it. Perimeter, to be surrounded or encompassed on all sides. The perimeter is closed in. You have no place of escape. You are pressed into the trial. And on top of that, they're variegated or multifaceted. He says various kinds. You can't go, well, I've learned that lesson of that trial. I'm ready for the next one. No, as your faith is growing, the need of that faith requires multifaceted trials so that your faith grows deeper in dependence. The trials must fit the ongoing needs of faith. I remember when one of my sons uh, skateboarding and broke the arm and was in a cast for quite some time. And we took that cast off and uh, we noticed his arm is a little smaller than the other arm. And it seemed a little weaker, a little more nimble. His parents were kind of going, it's pretty supple. What do we do? If he hits this again, if I just touch it, is it going to break? Well, we need to be very careful. <laughs> Let's wrap something around it. Let's protect it. Well, it needed to be strengthened and exercised to grow. To be able to meet the trials of daily life that we just take for granted. And likewise, God brings these trials into our life to exercise saving faith. Resting in Christ, resting in Christ, resting in the sovereignty of God. Shanghai, China was in the grip of war during the time of Hudson Taylor. Rebels known as the Red Turbans caused continual fighting so that everything was in famine prices. Tens of thousands were dying daily. Taylor, a missionary there in China, had a badly deranged liver, made him sleepless and led to painful depression. His wife died of typhoid fever. But then he writes this. It doesn't matter, really, how great the pressure is. It only matters where the pressure lies. See that it never comes between you and the Lord. Then the greater the pressure, the more it presses you to his heart. He continues later, Can Christ be rich and I poor? Can your right hand be rich and your left poor? Or your head be well fed while your body starves? For he I know is able to carry out his will, and his will is mine. No fear that his resources will prove unequal to the emergency. His resources are mine, for he is mine, and is with me, and dwells in me. So this persevering faith possesses trials, employs spiritual knowledge, produces steadfastness, faithfulness, stays under it to grow, and pursues completion. He says there in verse 4 that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a present maturity that you may be. That includes today. God is at work in you today. How encouraging is that? 
He's often used the example of my wife with her flower garden. And I think at times she's not really involved. She's just stepping back and enjoying it, sitting in a chair, looking out the window and enjoying the garden. When she's involved, she's weeding. And she's down there in the flower garden getting dirty. Uh, what an example. You know when God is near? Oh, yeah, he's omnipresent. I understand that. But when there's an intimacy and awareness of his personal presence in our lives, he's weeding. He's working through trials in our life. To press home the nearness and dearness of his sovereign grace in Christ. But there's also a future maturity. We see that in verse 12. And that's where we'll pick up on verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We would argue that that is the crown which is life. The final life is given. We enter eternal life. Glorification. It's to those who love him. But notice it's future, future completion. So there's a present maturity with the mind the perspective of a future completion. Brothers and sisters, our trials, when they're done, you will be in his presence. That's what they're for, is to mature us. And when they're done, you're ready to stand before God. So be thankful for the trials that he's working in your life. He's preparing us. But we'll need to clean to his promises. This is what then promotes the joy that he calls for. Count it all joy. It's, an extru- it's a truth exchange. I understand what he's doing in my life. Cling to that promise and make an exchange. And when the trials press us and out comes the bitterness and anxiety and jealousy and selfish ambition that's rooted in uh, James 3, we realize, wait a minute. I'm not counting it joy because I don't see the promise of his word, the promise of the knowledge and the purpose of testing faith. Lord, open my eyes. And so that's where he moves into wisdom. Wisdom, the second provision. I've called it pure wisdom because we see the contrast in James 3. If you go there, James 3.13, we see a contrast between worldly wisdom and the wisdom that comes from above. So when the trials press and out come worldly wisdom, I need to cry out, Lord, I lack, I need your wisdom. I'm not counting it joy. So look at the contrast in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom is applied in the knowledge of God to life's conduct. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure. It's not tainted by the fleshly lusts and desires. Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's characterized by righteousness. So going back to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We need wisdom if we're going to understand the purpose of trials. We need wisdom if we're not going to trust in riches. We need wisdom if we're not going to become uh, self-pity in our poverty or weakness. 
to endure temptation, to be on guard against spiritual apathy of hearing the word and not doing it. The warning of being double-tongued. We need wisdom to respond appropriately to trials. But this wisdom is supplied by God. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If any of you lack, chuckle a little bit because I think of it like breathing. If you lack air, breathe. Uh, Yeah, I guess I lack air every moment and so I'm constantly breathing. That's because I lack. I'm dependent. The same truth is coming across here. If you lack wisdom, and you do, and I do, then ask for it. Ask of God because it comes from God. It's a, a proclamation of my dependence. I need his wisdom. I need his wisdom in order to, to see the trials and to respond appropriately in light of the purpose of God. Otherwise, I'll fall into the traps that he warns against in James 1 through 5. In verse 7, he warns against a person who doubts, verse 6. He's like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Inundated by trial after trial after trial and not anchored in the wisdom of God. We're constantly using our own human wisdom and we're failing, failing, failing. Double-minded, unstable. Don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. You're looking to yourself. I'm looking to myself. It's possessed by God. Look to Him. Now, we would argue, based on the context of Scripture as a whole, that wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. Paul, in Colossians 2, 2 and 3, says, Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So wisdom can be summed up in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And that's not too foreign from our context. For in James 2, 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's shorthand for the gospel. Union with Christ in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's to gain all of him, his person and his work. That is where wisdom is found. We need the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. But it's access through prayer. Let him ask of God. There's a necessity and an urgency to make requests. We'll be reminded that prayer is a gift of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Because Christ is our high priest, has passed through the heavens, now we have access to a throne of grace. So come boldly, because Christ has procured access. Our prayers would never be accepted apart from the work of Jesus. Our disobedience, our rebellion bars us out from his presence. Proverbs and the Psalms are very clear. He doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked. Challenging text. So how could he hear our prayers? Because the promise of Christ, that he condescended to us, came into this world, obeyed for us, fulfilled the royal law, as he'll pick up in James 2, the royal law of love, loving God, loving neighbor, fulfilling the law. And then he went to the cross and took the punishment that is required that through faith, his righteousness, his obedience to law is credited to your account, to my account, and our guilt is credited to his account. And we have full access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ because he's purchased access. So when we pray, it is a declaration of Jesus Christ. It is a declaration of the gospel. And you are seeking him through prayer, which he has purchased, seeking wisdom, which is in Christ. So Christ has purchased it, and you seek him in wisdom. 
1993, I went to Zuma Beach. We were on the verge of having the 94 Northridge earthquake. And I already found at that time the ocean was experiencing very high waves from at least what I was told was a typhoon in Japan or at least around the Pacific. Now, for one, I'm not the best swimmer, but these things at least seem to me 15-plus foot waves. And I'm coming from Nebraska, Illinois, Midwest. What do I know? So all these college students are telling me, oh, it's simple. You dive and you grab sand. Grab sand? What do you mean grab sand? You know, hold on to sand. Have you ever held on to sand before? Well, so you know me. I'd sit there and fight against it, try to fight these, but they'd plummel me. A few of them held me under. I thought, I'm dead. It wouldn't let me up. I didn't know what was up. I didn't know what was down. Finally let up. I came up and bam, got hit again. I thought, I I can't even get out of this thing. And I thought, grab sand. (laughs) So I dove down and grabbed sand. And I I guess it gets you underneath the turbulence because it was passing over me. And I was able to come up and swim back to the shore. That was about it for the day. Grab sand. You know, that's what God's calling us to do. Get on our faces in prayer. Well, prayer doesn't seem very tangible. No, it's not the prayer. It's what's anchoring in it. It's it's the gospel. It's Christ. We seek Him through prayer for wisdom. It's a declaration of our dependence. We are low, reaching high, reaching to Him, our Savior. Wisdom flows out of grace, verse 5. He gives liberally, without reproach. He gives generously, abundantly. With his whole heart is the idea of liberally or generously. It means a single motive, a single eye. With his whole heart, there's no ulterior motive. He loves to lavish on his children without reproach. There's no ulterior motives. He wants our best in Christ. It's an outflow of grace, and it's received then through faith. What would we expect? Dependence. That's what the trial is doing. That's what the wave is doing. Bring this low. A person who doesn't believe, he's double-minded. He's unstable. He is tossed to and fro. It's a person who trusts in his own self-wisdom and self-experience. I don't know why I'm on the beach things, but we were on one occasion with my family. You got to pan up about five years later. By that time, I've had kids and the wife's there. And I remember the lifeguard coming out and set up a sign, you know, be very careful. The currents are really strong. If you accidentally swim out in one of those currents, you would get dragged out into the ocean. You could swim all you want back to the shore, but as you're doing that, it's pulling you back. Well, there were about three girls who decided not to come in, and they're yelling. They're moving back, and you can just see them kind of getting smaller and smaller, and these two lifeguards run out there swimming, able to grab onto them, and they swim at an angle. Seems to go against common sense. I want to get back to the shore. I want to get back to the shore. That's what I think. Ah, no, swimming at an angle. Seemed to take forever, but they got him there. Saved them. I think in our human wisdom, we say, ah, this is where I'm going, this is my purpose, and we find we're going backwards. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives. Third provision. We've seen persevering faith. We've seen uh, pure wisdom. And then our third, paradoxical boasting. Paradoxical boasting. And this is intriguing. Look at verse 9. Here's our third imperative, let. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let the lowly brother boast. Let him glory. Let him exalt in his high position, in his exaltation. Literally, humble Circumstances, humiliation means low lying. 
It's used in Matthew 5, 3, where Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But in this context, he's contrasting to the physically rich. So we would argue the context would lead to a humble state, a humble condition, humble circumstances. And sometimes the Lord allots those in different periods of life to us. Sometimes he keeps us there. There also we find the rich who have a higher state. Sometimes the Lord takes the rich and brings them into the poor and the poor into the rich and moves us through different states. But notice the response to the trial. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let him glory in his high position. Well, what is he glorying in? The gospel? James 2, 5. Those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. That's what the poor estate, a person in a humble circumstance, is treasuring, is the richness that he has in the promises of the gospel. He is rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. He is making an exchange. He's calculating in light of, here's my humble state, but that's not the condition that I'm in. My eternal condition is in Christ. Oh, he who is gloriously rich. What I really need is righteousness. That's the currency of heaven. And I've got that in Christ. Despite my humble circumstance. And so there's a, a currency exchange, if you will, that goes on in that believer's life. He rejoices. It's ironic when you read Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That sounds so high and lofty, yet, Paul, you're a prisoner of the Lord. How can you rejoice and commend that state to us? Oh, chapter 1, we've been blessed in the heavenly places in Christ predestined as adoption of sons, redeemed. We have forgiveness of our sins, the riches of his grace. We've obtained an inheritance. That's the calling. I can glory in this high calling. It's a paradoxical boast for the Christian. The world doesn't understand it. It prizes us as foolish. Not the believer. But the rich also. They make a boast. But they don't boast in their... Riches, they boast in their humiliation, in his humiliation, his low line in Christ. The, the believer in a rich estate of life understands Matthew 19, 24 through 26, where Christ says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. They understand that their riches can never get them to heaven. They understand it's only a gift of God that they're broken over the cross and humbled and recognize that it's only by, by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's where their joy is. They understand in verses 10 and 11 that the riches of the world, they grow up in their greatest prosperity, or prosperity and are wiped away. In their maturity, they wither, they pass away, they fall, they perish, they fade away. They don't put their trust in that. They apprise humility as a gift. Their brokenness is a gift of God. That's where we boast. You want to handle suffering and trial? Understand persevering faith? Understand pure wisdom that comes from God? And paradoxical boasting? You're going to need the knowledge of his word to have that perspective. 
Fourth, the provision of perfect gifts. Perfect gifts. Verse 13, we have the fourth command. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Don't miss the context. Don't miss the brackets. We often go over here and say, here's temptation, and then we split up the text and we look at the goodness of God. No, it's the goodness of God that that is the promise to do battle with the temptation of sin. The reason we succumb to trials, he's arguing, is because of our lust, our self-desire. And that gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's accomplished, gives birth to death. We see that on a macro level. We saw it in Adam, whose self-desire and death. We see it on a micro level. When I begin to trust in myself and my own wisdom, we find despair, death, and decay. Notice that lust, its end game is death. But notice the goodness of God, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There's no change. Not like lust that's always changing, James 4 tells us, that war within ourselves brings death. Oh, but not the goodness of God and his character the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He's faithful. And what does he bring forth? Not death. Look at verse 18. Brought forth by the word of truth so that we might be the first fruits among his creatures. Life. The word of truth, the gospel, brings forth life. So how do we wage war? Recognize that trial hits our hearts. And we respond with self-wisdom and we can't count it joy. We've got a problem. We're depending on our own desires. And we crowd in wisdom through prayer, recognizing the work of Jesus Christ. And we cling to the promise of God's goodness and his faithfulness and the power of his word to do battle with the promise of our flesh. That's where the game is on. Will you believe the promise of the flesh? It looks attractive It sure does the spin in our minds and hearts. comes up empty. But the goodness of God, faithful. And that's why we have scripture laid out before us. Faithful, 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 faithful. Yes, to judge, to save. To judge, to save. And as you begin to grow and understand that faithfulness, you look back at your life and go, yes, he's faithful, he's faithful, he's faithful. Stupid heart, I've seen that promise before. I know where that ends. Look to Christ. And that brings us with our fifth. Our fifth. We've seen persevering faith, pure wisdom, a paradoxical boasting, perfect gifts that come from God, ultimately found in the word of truth that brings forth life. And finally, the provision of the planted word, the planted word. And here we'll need to connect some dots very quickly. But it comes out of verse 18 where we see we're brought forth by the word of truth. Let me just take a little tour with you. Remember verse 19. uh, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he moves into the considerations of the word of God. Look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word, it's been implanted, which is able to save your souls. 
but be doers of the word. Look at 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word, 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. So he expands the word and begins to consider it under the term of perfect law, the law of liberty. We know it's in the same context because he's been talking about doers of the word. And in 25, he continues with the idea of not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. That's correlated with the law of liberty, which is correlated with the word of truth that brings us forth. Now, in that context of acting, in 27, he deals with the affliction of orphans and widows. And then in 2.1, he deals with partiality. But notice he has added to this dimension, word of truth, the law of liberty, and now Hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is shorthand for the gospel, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he adds another aspect. I'm committing that this is articulation of the word which proclaims the gospel. So I'm arguing for the law of liberty. He provides a contrast between this law of liberty and the royal law. Drop with me down to verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. Now, notice it's according to the scriptures, within the scripture. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. So he's picked back up on what he introduced in 2.1, showing partiality and introducing faith in Jesus Christ. It's still there. Verse 9, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So now he's introduced this law and defined it as the royal law summed up in love. That's the law. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the requirement of the law. James says when you break one, you break it all, you're a transgressor. Oh, but now he moves back to the law of liberty, verse 12. And notice hearing, doing, speaking, acting again. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Coming back to the law that he introduced, the royal law. And then mercy triumphs over judgment. So what I'm arguing is that this law of liberty provides mercy. It is the promise of the gospel of faith in Christ Jesus. It is contrasted to the royal law. So we have God's law summarizing the Ten Commandments, articulating love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're commanded to keep that, but we transgressed it. And there's judgment due. But the text has offered for us the law of liberty. Paul uses this term in Romans to describe the law of sin, the law of faith, describing a principle or power. Well, here's the power of liberty. And what does it do? It provides mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. So we don't come to the law to find forgiveness and salvation. We're condemned. In fact, when the trials come and we try to, by our own flesh and our own strength, keep the law, you're going to find failure. And James says, look at the law of liberty. Look at the promise of the gospel in Christ Jesus. There is mercy. Well, how do I get that? If you carried on to James 2.23, you would see that Abraham believed God and was credited for righteousness. That's what we need. That's what the law of liberty provides. Christ has fulfilled the law. He has provided righteousness. Through faith in him, that righteousness is credited in account of those who believe the law's, the law's requirements are satisfied in Jesus, and we receive mercy. This is the greatest encouragement in the midst of our trials. James spends so much time unlocking this. 
Why? Let's give a couple characteristics and summary of this word. One, it is a saving character. It brings us forth, verse 18, by the word of truth. And James 1.21, it's able to save the soul. It has a, a saving character. And it therefore has a, a liberating character. The gospel, the word of God, has a liberating character. James 1.25, it calls it the law of liberty. The principle of power of liberty. In James 2.12, he says, Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And it describes mercy triumphing over judgment. How does this liberty work? What well, frees us from sin's deception? That's the context of 19 through 27 of chapter 1. We were to be on guard against the filthiness and wickedness of sin, against deceiving ourselves in verse 22. And so we're called to, in verse 25, to look into the law of liberty. Therein we hear the word, but it also brings about a corresponding fruit, an action in our life, the power of the law of liberty, the gospel. So when we need to have our eyes cleaned to see the trial, I need to run to the law of liberty, the promise of the gospel. Because often what's in the way is I'm trusting my own self-reliance, my own flesh, and need to get a good drink of the gospel again of Christ Jesus and rest in him. But how does this word liberate from sin's deception? Well, as we commended, it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are rendered free from the law's judgment. And we already looked at that. So to conclude, I want to conclude with John Bunyan and just a little account of him. He was considered a pugnacious drunkard. And he was really struggling with that as he was looking at his past, his ball is a brawling bar brawling if i can say that say that 10 times he was considering his own life am i saved where where, where, where's my hope in the midst of all this he came to this conclusion he said this my righteousness is in heaven my righteousness is in heaven he wasn't looking back at trying to undo the past he looked to the promise of god's righteousness which is already secured for him right there at the right hand of god in christ jesus That's where his righteousness is. And that is the greatest encouragement in trial. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the promise of the gospel. Thank you for the word of truth. You've not left us alone. You have told us that you have knit even trials for the needs of our faith. And when these trials are done, we're ready to stand before you. Thank you for visiting us with the gospel. For unleashing our eyes from our own deception and allowing us to look into the glories of Jesus Christ, to trust in Him. Lord, we pray for each and every one of us even here today. We are allotted with trials and difficulties. We do live in a sin-cursed world. But as believers, we have the joy knowing that you are working everything out for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose in Jesus Christ. And so we rest in you. In Christ's precious name, amen.